This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey everyone, there is some unbleeped language in this episode. You've been warned. Annie Lowry writes for The Atlantic, and she lives in the spiritual home of the tech industry, San Francisco. That means this past weekend was a strange one for her. It's been really, really unusually rainy. So it's been dumping snow in the Sierra Nevadas, and the weekend was um, just pouring the entire time. And people were just, like, sitting inside On Twitter, I was, like, just texting with people who are like, oh, my gosh, like, my corporate card doesn't work. These corporate credit cards were offline because a lot of them were linked to Silicon Valley Bank, the regional lender that you've probably heard about by now. The storms on Wall Street continue today after regulators seized the assets of Silicon Valley Bank. SVB, the 16th largest bank in the U.S. with $175 billion in deposits, is now the biggest American bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis. This bank held the assets of name brand tech companies like Roku, Etsy and Roblox, along with regular old checking accounts and home loans. As of Friday, it had gone totally bust. I was on the phone with a lot of people who were, like, trying to figure out what's happening. Because normally, when a bank fails in the American system, ideally what happens is the FDIC goes in over the weekend. They create these kind of arranged sales, these sort of forced marriages. So on Friday, you think that you're banking with like incompetent so-and-so bank of Santa Clara. And Monday you wake up and they're like, surprise, now you're a customer of Wells Fargo. And what happened here was the government was forced to take it over before the weekend. It happened on Friday, like early in the day. And they didn't, they still haven't found a buyer. And so the bank seizes, everybody's freaking out. All these depositors have been trying to get their money all week. And and so it was total chaos. It felt like, oh my gosh, everybody's panicking. What's going on here? What's happening to my company? Am I going to get paid? What's happening to my mortgage? This week, the federal government said every SVB account holder would be made whole. In other words, they would be able to get their money back. Markets calmed down. The damage was contained, for now anyway. But Annie, she was still left with some big questions. Who do you blame for what happened over the weekend with Silicon Valley Bank? Ooh, there's a lot of blame to go around here. This is a colossal fuck-up. I don't think the damage is going to end up being bad here, but that doesn't change the fact that this never should have happened. Ever. Today on the show, picking apart who exactly is to blame for the second biggest bank failure in American history. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I think a lot of people had never heard of Silicon Valley Bank, especially people who aren't in California until this week. But I'm wondering if you can just tell me a little bit about who they are. Like, I I noticed that there was this kind of swoony ode to Silicon Valley Bank and the Financial Times in the last few days, which, you know, was like it was the bank that was there for us when no one else would be. Can you explain? Absolutely. So Silicon Valley Bank was the normal bank for the startup and the innovation economy. So if you were a VC. A venture capitalist. A venture capitalist. You, maybe you the startups that you advised and you put money into, you recommended to them that they put their money in Silicon Valley Bank, meaning your money, and did their regular old banking there. And Silicon Valley Bank really, really courted these companies and businesses. They gave them sort of special terms in some case. They sort of said, hey, if you're getting money by VCX, you should also have this regular banking function with us. And they were kind of a social connector in a way also of kind of glad handing these financial relationships. I can see both sides of this coin. Like I can see I can see why focusing on one sector of the economy is actually a good thing. Like you're creating connections between people. You're an expert in like what this particular slice of the economy is all about. But was there a risk here too that just being invested in in sort of like one piece of the economy leaves you exposed in some way? Absolutely. And again and again, you're going to hear in this story that the things that got fucked up here were really basic, obvious, like, just don't do this stupid, stupid moods. If I told you that I had all of my retirement savings in one asset and it was Mary stock, you'd say to me probably something like, hey, do you want to diversify your assets? Wouldn't it be more financially sound and safe for you to diversify your assets so that if Mary stock goes down, that you're not out, you're not exposed, right? Silicon Valley Bank was not diversifying its assets. It was hyper-concentrated in this one industry. 
And so the American economy is in a somewhat unusual, but generally very strong state right now where we have somewhat high interest rates. They're not that high, high inflation, uh, but really low unemployment Um, And most businesses are doing really well. Well, except for the tech sector. Exactly. There's a full-on recession happening out here, declining housing prices. Tons of companies have gone bust in the past year. And that was what Silicon Valley Bank was exposed to. They are, you know, in an industry that is in recession right now because they did not (laughs) diversify. So in layman's terms, just explain to me the chain of events that led up to this weekend. So what happens is that tech booms before it busts. And so what this means for Silicon Valley Bank is kind of two things. One is that it means their deposit base, their customer base expands a lot really fast. This begins in kind of 2019. The bank sort of doubles or triples in size just by people keeping regular old money in regular old accounts at Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, like I, the numbers are crazy. Like for in 2020, going from having 60 billion in deposits to 200 billion in 2022, that's enormous. And like every bank in America, what do they do? They take deposits and they actually loan most of that, but not all of that money out. They generally loan out like 80 or 90 percent of it. This is just standard bank business, right? And so Silicon Valley, uh, they do not go make a bunch of weird financial crazy loans with it, which is sort of what we might have seen in 2007, they buy government securities. They buy like the safest investment assets on earth, mortgage-backed securities, which are backed by the government, and bonds, long ones, right? So 30-year assets, not like five-year assets. This is kind of critical. Because that locks the money up. Like if you come knocking on the door saying, hey, I want my like $10,000 back, you're like, okay, that's not in a loan that's being paid back right now. It's actually locked up in this securitized investment. Yeah, but none of that is weird. These assets are totally, totally safe. So what went wrong? What happens is to counter the effects of inflation, the Fed raises interest rates. They do this in a totally transparent manner, right? They have press conferences every single time. I cannot stress how normal and transparently this is done. And so what that means is that the bonds do not, or the securities, they're not trading at their full face value. They trade by slightly less And so what this means is that a big chunk of their assets um, or the investments that they're making with people's just regular old cash, now the face value of those assets is lower than what they paid for them. So if they have to sell them, they have to sell them at a loss. No one likes that. Nobody likes (laughs) that. And other banks are in the same position and they buy hedges or they change the dating on the instruments, right? Instead of getting 30 years, they get five years. For some reason, Silicon Valley Bank does not do this. They do not do this. Instead, they have a large hole that begins to get bigger and bigger. And the hole, critically, is only a problem if a lot of people want their cash back and they have to sell these instruments at a loss. This is precisely what happens. So they get the downgrade notice. A bunch of people start stirring and are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Depositors, you might, you're not, maybe you won't get your money back. Deposits are already kind of going out. There's like an outflow of money that's somewhat unusual for Silicon Valley Bank because of that tech recession, because startups are are spending down their capital because 
times are bad out here. And VCs start advising their startups, hey, don't get caught out here. Everybody withdraws their money. This precipitates an immediate catastrophe for Silicon Valley Bank. And and they did the sale of the assets at a loss, and they announced that they're trying to raise money through selling stock, which is probably not the worst thing to do. But they message this completely incompetently. They do not find a buyer, and catastrophe ensues. It sounds like really bad risk management, like just not kind of like seeing what's coming and responding appropriately. Totally. In 2007, the problem is we have huge amounts of assets and we don't know how to value them. And we don't know what's toxic and what's not toxic. And we have tons of weird financial instruments that are linked to each other in ways that nobody gets. And where is this garbage? Whose books is it even on? Here, the issue is interest rates go up. This is like Econ 101. Yeah, not even like to crazy levels, right? Interest rates are not unusual right now. They've gone up. And somehow they just fail to take any of the time they needed to cover this hole in their balance sheet. Like the only answer here is complete mismanagement on their part. Really simple, dumb mismanagement that led to catastrophe. So what would better risk management have looked like here? Like what would have prevented this from happening? There are sort of three sets of regulators who could have looked at this and stepped in. So there's California state regulators. There's the FDIC, who the head of the FDIC, Marty Gruenberg, um, he's a lawyer. He just became the head in 2023, um, was there all through the financial crisis. I think he should have to answer some questions about what the FDIC was doing here. And then uh, this institution was also regulated by the Fed. So I think at any point, they could have come in as part of their supervisory function and said, hey, let's take a, a look at the books here. What's the what's the plan here? And that didn't happen. And we don't know why not, right? Yeah, I think that we're, we're going to find out why. And so uh, the government has announced a review of this. And I think one thing that might happen is that more sort of internal deliberatory kind of here's how we were kicking the tire stuff might come out and become public. And I think that that would be that would be really good to explain what happened here. There's also this detail about how the CEO sold like three million dollars worth of company stock like just a couple weeks before the failure of the bank, which just looks like kind of a a, <laughs> a rat running away from the ship, just like, whoa, this doesn't look good. Absolutely. And, you know, he did that. He put in the notice for it in January. This was all like happening out in the open at this at that point. And yeah, I hope he has fun explaining to Congress why that happened. <laughs> it looks really bad. After the break why SVB's collapse was years in the making. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget. 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Clearly bad decisions were made by Silicon Valley Bank in recent months. But you've argued that the groundwork for this collapse was actually laid back in 2018. Can you explain how? So after the last financial crisis... We have this giant bill called Dodd-Frank that does a lot of things to shore up the American financial system. It makes banks kind of do more boring banking. It makes financial institutions hold uh, more collateral and safer collateral in some cases. And small and medium banks, medium-sized banks like Silicon Valley Bank, lobby really hard to get this kind of exemption and sort of say that they don't need quite the supervision that uh, bigger banks do because they're not as like systemically important. And uh, but this, you know, is happening during the Trump administration, which is more friendly to businesses arguing for deregulation than perhaps the Obama administration was and the Biden administration is. And so this this goes through. So I would argue that Congress has a tremendous amount to answer for here. Because, you know, they they deregulate and lo and behold, just a couple years later, this blows up. I think it's interesting to highlight just how common this idea that a smaller bank should be less regulated became. Like Barney Frank, who was one of the main architects of the Dodd-Frank bill, advocated 
for less regulation for smaller banks and was part of that. You know, you have Jerome Powell at his confirmation hearing explicitly saying we need to kind of tailor regulation so it doesn't have as much intensity or stringency for smaller banks. Like, it seems like this really very quickly became accepted wisdom. Yes. And so if I were looking at Dodd-Frank and saying, did it help here? I would say yes. So the financial system is much better capitalized than it was back before the crash. What does that mean? Yeah, it it means that they're, you know, it's a little bit more boring. And for doing risky things like lending, financial institutions have to hold more capital, which is really important to protect themselves um, against losses. They just have to have more cash on hand. Yeah, cash and safe assets, often like treasure, <laughs> treasuries, exactly the instruments that we're talking about. But yeah, they can't be making a bunch of weird bets, but holding no money in reserve for when those bets go wrong or depositors need their money back. But yeah, there's a very, very specific, I don't even know if it's an irony, but you know, the writers did really well with this one, that <laughs> Congress on a bipartisan basis repeals oversight requirements for banks between 50 and $250 billion in assets under pressure from regional banks like Silicon Valley Bank. And five years later, exactly what people said would happen happened. And one of these blows up and all of a sudden it's systemically important. And, you know, they need to come in and Uncle Sam comes in and backstops. Here's what that backstop looked like. First, the government moved to protect other banks from failing the way SVB did by offering to lend them money proactively in case they needed it. The feds also swooped in to shut down Signature Bank, another institution that, like Silicon Valley Bank, seemed to be teetering on the verge of collapse. Then the government declared these bank failures a systemic risk, which allowed the FDIC to swoop in and guarantee all the deposits at both banks, even accounts valued at over $250,000. Usually, if you are parking more than a quarter million bucks at a bank, you cannot expect the feds to guarantee it. So the main problem that arose when Silicon Valley went into this kind of chaotic collapse and poof, the bank is gone, is that it was a depository institution and the FDIC insured limit goes up to $250,000. But about 90% of account holders at Silicon Valley Bank, and this is like an unusually large number, were business accounts that had more than $250,000. And they were like, how are we going to make payroll? Right, because it was like companies. It was like Roku, right? Exactly. Companies who are like, we have a loan payment. We have to pay our utility bill. We have to pay our employees. And because it collapsed in this sort of, you know, chaotic fashion, there's this real question of, oh, my gosh, are thousands of people going to start losing their jobs or getting furloughed? All of these businesses were creating these contingency plans. They were going to their VCs and asking for cash. They were freaking out. Well, and importantly, a lot of people were taking to Twitter and basically saying, hi, like, I don't know what we're going to do. We really need like all of the money to be restored, even though the FDIC does not insure past $250,000. Please, 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 just this one time, make the exception. Yes, exactly. And the problem was FDIC legally could not come in and insure more than $250,000. They had a special authority to do that during the financial crisis, but that authority 
like lapsed. They didn't have the authority anymore. Legally, the only way they could do it is if there was a systemic crisis and Treasury and Fed and the president agreed there was a systemic crisis and that needed to happen. There was a process that needed to happen. Either Congress would have had to give them special permission or they would have had to get it from the federal government. At the same time that's going on, there's real concern about other regional banks that might be exposed in this same way. And, you know, a lot of companies are thinking, wow, like, you know, absent other action, we're going to pull our money and we're going to put it with Citi because we just can't, we can't handle this. And there was just concerns about ripple effects, bank runs. And so that was what led them to sort of say, okay, we're using our special powers, our special emergency powers for the second time, notably since Dodd-Frank. And what will happen is the whole system is supposed to be self-insuring. So the FDIC will charge these institutions a little bit more to act as the insurer. Do you really think it's not going to trickle down to the taxpayer? So I am very much team this is a bailout. I think that this will not literally cost taxpayer money. But nevertheless, there is implicitly this promise that when there is financial contagion and everything goes to shit, we're not going to let it happen again. We're going to step in. And so that's why I think it's a bailout. You're creating special rules after the fact to protect people who should have known better. And so simultaneously, I think this won't cost the taxpayer anything. But, you know, my kind of like little favorite factoid about this is that TARP, the mother of all bailouts. Back from 2008. Yeah, the much-hated bank bailout of 2008 didn't cost the taxpayer anything in time. It actually made a little bit of money for the government. So in some ways, it functioned like a tax. (laughs) Hmm. I mean, I guess here's, for me, I think the reason why this guarantee to pay people back even above the 250000 I think the reason it's become a big deal is really just the optics. Like the New York Times had this article where they reported that basically a bunch of tech investors were on a flight from Austin to California. They were coming from South by Southwest. Everyone on board gets the news that they're going to be bailed out, that Silicon Valley Bank is going to be bailed out. And like the whole plane erupts in cheers. And it's just, it doesn't look great. These are a bunch of people who are just like chilling in Austin, you know, talking about tech. They're going to be fine. And now they're going to be even more fine. Yeah, absolutely. I think the optics here, and this is kind of like one of the essential philosophical problems with financial regulation, is when financial contagion and instability in the financial system happens, it affects everyone. So just regular mom and pop businesses who happen to bank with Silicon Valley Bank because there was a Silicon Valley Bank down the road from them in like, you know, suburban parts of Silicon Valley, they they were affected by this. This was probably really scary for them. It was really, really unfair. And for financial contagion to happen and for there to be bank runs at tons of uninvolved Um, mid-sized regional banks that legitimately would have been really bad. But I think we have seen, again, as a kind of stepping back philosophical point, again and again and again, in a way that is really hard for normal people to stomach, you know, when they need help from the government, when they're underwater on their mortgage, or they're hoping to get their student loans covered, or they need tenant protections, that the federal government isn't necessarily there for them. And then all of a sudden, when these like libertarian leaning cranks who like hate the government normally, 
you know, when they, they have like 72 hours of personal panic, all of a sudden it's, it's Jay Powell and it's the president, it's the Treasury Department and Janet Yellen on the line making sure that they're okay. Yeah. I want to talk about accountability now that these bank failures have happened. We talked about how keeping smaller banks less regulated and more nimble has become accepted wisdom over the last few years. So what does that mean about how hard it's going to be to get consensus in Washington about how to prevent banking failures like this one in the future? I think that the government should have to answer some real questions about, you know, even if the rules were not the right ones and that's Congress's fault, what happened to the supervisory function here, right? Why did they fail at that? I think that there are some tough questions that folks should have to answer about that. And I think that this will end up being pretty deeply unpopular because it's going to be known as the Silicon Valley bailout, that there was like a weekend long freak out at the financial heart of Silicon Valley and everybody here got protected by the taxpayer. And I think that we should ask a lot of really, really hard questions about that. And I do think that the only good thing to come out of this, my hope is, and this will take a... Um, a legal change coming from Washington is that depositors are uh, much more fully protected from this kind of bank run in the future. I mean, Elizabeth Warren wrote in the New York Times and advocated to claw back the salaries of bankers at Silicon Valley Bank. Do you think there's going to be an appetite for that? Absolutely. I think all of these people are going to get called before Congress. I think there will be clawback provisions. I think there will be a very close look at their pay packages at that stock sale. And I think that is completely appropriate. And I also think it's appropriate so that other bankers understand if you are doing this sort of thing, um, that you're going to have to answer for it and you're going to get called in front of Congress and maybe you're going to have your personal financial situation ripped apart <laughs> in public because you weren't protecting uh, the safety of other people's assets as you were supposed to be. Annie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really grateful for your reporting here. Thanks so much for having me. Annie Lowry is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She's also the author of Give People Money. On Tuesday, the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission announced they would be opening investigations into the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Early reports say they intend to focus in part on executive stock sales in the days leading up to the crisis. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Paige Osborne, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are getting a ton of support these days from Jared Downing and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you tomorrow. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. 
His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.